And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How you doing, Sarah? Good. It's been a lazy day for me. Yeah. What about you? I'm doing pretty good. Nothing to complain about. Really? Mark, mark the calendars, everyone. Ben has nothing to complain about. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) I love you, too. And, Sarah, we have a new patron to Oh, my gosh. Oh. Yeah. Um, So, we have a brand new patron over on the Patreon. Uh, Their name is Begiver. B-G-Y-V-R. All caps. Begiver. Ah, sure. Thank you, Big Giver. Thank you very much. You can join them in becoming a patron of the show by heading over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Unless it's something that's supposed to be kind of like MacGyver. Like MacGyver? Yeah, I read it. I'm, I'm MacGyver's cousin. Big MacGyver. <laughs> what are we watching today? Sarah, today we are watching Valley of the Zombies from 1946. Sounds like a real contender for the number one spot on the list. <laughs> And I don't know a lot about Valley of the Zombies. I've never seen it. Same. But from the title, I would sort of expect something like Revolt of the Zombies or King of the Zombies, sort of a movie about, you know, going to some lost valley in the jungle where there's a bunch of, you know, undead critters, right? You bring up a good point. Um, Neither of those movies are horror movies. Correct. So what makes Valley of the Zombies meet the criteria for why we're watching it. Well, for one thing, it has neither a valley nor zombies in the movie. You're not making a good case for why we're watching it, Ben. Well, I guess I just mean that they aren't going to go to a valley in the jungle and see a bunch of zombies. (laughs) Okay. So Valley of the Zombies is the back half of the horror double feature that Republic put out with Catman of Paris... Um, Both films were produced by Republic with the expectation of being exhibited together. The director of this film is Philip Ford, who is the 46-year-old nephew of famous acclaimed director John Ford. Hmm. Creator of automobiles as well. No. (laughs) Philip was the son of John's actor brother, Francis. And Philip had started as an actor himself in 1917, but became an assistant director in 1928. His first feature film as a full director was 1945's The Tiger Woman, a noir from Republic. Uh, So Valley of the Zombies would be Philip Ford's third feature film. So, you know, he's been in the business a long time, but... (laughs) We'll see how he does here. Most of his subsequent work after this would be westerns, and he switched to television in the 1950s. I feel like that happened to a lot of people in serials. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the people who worked for Republic making westerns and serials shifted gears into television. Really just like the whole Poverty Row subset of Hollywood, because... Yeah, well, like, even today we have direct-to-TV movies. And those have really, you know, direct-to-TV movies or direct-to-video movies 
uh, direct-to-streaming movies, these have really replaced, like, the the role of Poverty Row B-movies. Which was to just pump it out. Right, just to have content, yeah. Um, granted, direct-to-streaming stuff is started to also have very prestige, expensive, you know, kind of stuff going on with it, so it's not quite the same there. The producers of this film were brothers Daryl and Stuart McGowan. Uh, they were writers for Republic, uh, mostly on westerns, and then they were occasionally also producers and directors as well. Perhaps the most notable achievement of the two is that they were the key producers, writers, and directors of the original incarnation of the Canadian television series The Littlest Hobo from 1963 to 1965. Littlest Hobo! That's the second time Littlest Hobo has gotten a mention on the show. The two of them wrote Valley of the Zombies' final screenplay from an original draft by Royal Cole and Sherman Lowe, who were both experienced Republic serial writers. Uh, Royal Coe had written Captain America in 1944, and then would go on to write Superman in 1948 and Batman and Robin in 1949 for Columbia, as well as King of the Rocket Men for Republic in 1949, and Blackhawk in 1952 for Columbia. King of the Rocket Man. Yeah, the lead character's name is Rocket Man, and he looks... <laughs> no, <laughs> Mr. Man is my father. Call me Rocket. <laughs> uh, and he looks basically exactly like the Rocketeer. Okay. Sherman Lowe uh, had written The Green Hornet Strikes Again in 1940, The Phantom in 1943, and of course, Catman of Paris as well. Yeah, we found Catman of Paris had a very serial kind of structure, or the way that the script was written was clearly by someone who was like more familiar with writing serials, where... Mm -hmm. You have to be reminding the audience what the plot is halfway through. Yeah, all uh, four of these writers are serial writers, the producers are serial producers, and the director is a relative newbie. Well, I mean, Catman of Paris, that director was more experienced with westerns, mm -hmm. and that seeped into just what exactly Catman of Paris had going on with it. So maybe this is a good thing? I mean, this guy's going to go on to do a lot of westerns, too, so... Yeah, but not yet. <laughs> the lead actor here is Robert Livingston, who was born in Illinois in 1904 and appeared in 136 films from 1921 to 1975 before his death in 1988. He played Zorro in 1936's The Bold Caballero, and the Lone Ranger in 1939's The Lone Ranger Rides Again. Um, That's basically the same character twice. Uh, he primarily appeared as the hero in westerns for Republic in the 30s and 40s. His co-star is Adrian Booth, who we've seen before, but under a different name. She was born Virginia Pound in 1917 and started out at Universal and Paramount under her own name, but in 1938, she got a contract with Columbia, who changed her name to Lorna Gray. Under that name, we saw her as Karloff's daughter in The Man They Could Not Hang in 1939. Mm, yeah. In 1945, she moved to Republic, where her name was changed again to Adrian Booth. I, I don't know why they would change it, but it does mean that if she ever does get back up the ladder... You know, to hire studio, she can go back to Lorna Gray and not have it be quote-unquote sullied by Poverty Row 
films under her, that name. She was actually one of the top actresses at Republic. Um, like, at Columbia, she was a minor player, and then moving to Republic made her a bigger fish in a smaller pond, basically. She portrayed the female lead in the 1944 Captain America serial. Um, she got married in 1949 and retired from acting uh, as Adrian Booth. So I think her married name was Adrian Bourne, uh, based on, like, her, her husband's name. Oh, and so she changed her, like, legal name. Yeah, I believe so. Oh, I thought it was just, like, a stage name. And she passed away in 2017. Was so pretty recent. Mm-hmm. Get out of the business early, kids. You'll live forever. Our villain this time around is played by Ian Keith who was born Keith Ross in Boston in 1899. He was a stage actor who made the transition to film when the transition to talkies opened doors for actors with theater experience. He became a reliable character actor. Uh, he was a favorite of Cecil B. DeMille's, for instance. Uh, he was Octavian in the 1934 version of Cleopatra, Rochefort in the 1935 and 1948 versions of The Three Musketeers, Vitamin Flintheart in the 1940s Dick Tracy movies, and Ramses the First in the 1956 version of The Ten Commandments. He had even been one of the actors considered for the role of Dracula in 1931 before Lugosi made Universal an offer they couldn't refuse. He passed away in 1960. So Valley of the Zombies was released on May 24th, 1946 as the second feature with Catman of Paris. It was the final horror film produced by Republic Pictures. We will determine whether it actually is horror. It lapsed into the public domain and has never been released on DVD or Blu-ray. We will be seeing it on YouTube through our YouTube playlist, a version that has been sort of ripped from VHS. Okay. So the decline of the American film industry starting in the late 1940s hit smaller companies the hardest. Uh, much of the type of things that Republic made were now appearing on television through the late 40s and into the 1950s. And so studio head Herbert Yates decided to eliminate the short subject and serial departments and try to use that money to make higher budgeted films instead of um, in order to basically compete with television rather than just look like they were making the same product. However, even the high-budget Republic films were still low-budget from the perspective of the major studios, which were now spending tons of money on, you know, widescreen and 3D and all these other kinds of gimmicks. Well, these bigger companies are also getting rid of their B-movie departments mm -hmm. and having more money to spend on their A-pictures. Exactly. Now, ironically, what kept Republic alive through the 1950s was actually licensing their old serials to television oh, to yeah. be shown on, like, Saturday mornings and stuff when TV channels in the early days just needed, like, a lot of filler content. But Yates didn't really have the vision to think, ah, and move Republic into TV production. Sure. He kept trying to make feature films happen. In 1958, the shareholders of the company declared that Yates had acted against the best interests of Republic in trying to push his girlfriend Vera Ralston in flop after flop after flop, uh, and they had him removed from the company. Republic then shuttered its film production department. Oh. And then a year later, in 1959, they ceased distribution operations as well. In the 1960s, the company made money by renting their studio space to other companies for TV production, and in 1967, their studio lot was bought outright by CBS. So in the end, 
Republic Pictures eventually became television. Sure. Yeah, you can actually still go to what used to be the Republic Studio lot because it's still owned by CBS and used for television production. Oh, wow. Yeah. They should probably do some renovations. They probably have. <laughs> the film library was sold to National Telefilms Association. They used the Republic logo and trademark for distribution of the Republic library, whether to TV or video. And they even distributed some new movies under the name of Republic Pictures from 1985 to 1996. In 1994, Blockbuster Video bought Republic, and then Blockbuster itself was bought by Paramount. Currently, Republic Pictures basically exists solely as a brand name for a library of films, which are owned by Paramount and licensed for home video release to Olive Films. So, as you mentioned, Valley of the Zombies is listed on our YouTube playlist, which listeners can find on our website at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will just utterly destroy, just rake across the coals, Valley of the Zombies from 1946, directed by Philip Ford. Unless it turns out to be good somehow. I don't have a lot of hope. Well, we'll see. Or faith in, like, what the public can do, especially when they've clearly just cobbled some things together for a medium that is clearly dying and, like, the big leagues are having trouble with horror. I don't know, man. Well, we'll see what we think when we see you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Valley of the Zombies from 1946, directed by Philip Ford. Ben, first impressions. So, this movie rules, actually. Yeah, I'm very pleasantly surprised. Um, The worst thing about this movie is the title. Yeah. Which, like, doesn't have anything to do with the movie, and they kind of have to, like shoehorn shoehorn into some dialogue to justify almost um, to the point of lampshading yeah 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 it it sort of has almost the feel of like the marketing department gave us this title and we decided to tell this story yeah mm-hmm. but this story is is fun yes um i had a real fun time for an hour it was great well what's the movie about sarah let me tell you ben dr maynard is a brain scientist he runs a clinic with Dr. Terry Evans, nurse Susan Drake, and a chemist, Fred Mays. Someone lately has been stealing their blood stores. But, you know, first thing in the morning, they're going to call the police and put an end to it. Everyone heads home, except for Dr. Maynard, who plans to work late. A man comes in named Ormond Merks. Maynard doesn't recognize him. But then we get a flashback. I think the most important thing to note about Ormond Merckx is that he is wearing, like, a bowler hat and, like a, uh, like, a tuxedo and, like, a long cape 
and like carrying like a, a fancy cane. Yes, very Dracula like. Yes, that's that spot on. He's a Dracula. <laughs> In the flashback, we see that Maynard is responsible for Merck's being institutionalized mm-hmm. because of some kind of pressure on his brain and this compulsion of needing blood transfusions. After being institutionalized, Merck's suddenly became ill, and uh, Maynard, as well as a Dr. Garland, were present when Merck's died on the operating table four years ago. So how is he alive? Well, back in the present, Merck's explains that he was obsessed with life after death, something along the lines of the living dead. Mm-hmm. And he discovered the zombie secret in the Valley of the Zombies. But, according to Merck's, once you take the elixir, you must have blood injections to stay, quote-unquote, alive. So not in a catatonic state. Right. Like, it's it's like the, the Haitian voodoo thing of, like, you get the poison, and then you're, like, in a coma. But this time... It's a permanent state. That you need, like, blood. To, like, stay out of. Yeah, exactly. So he's a vampire zombie. Right. He's a science vampire, but the science is also voodoo. Maynard is out of Merck's blood type in the stores, though. But Merck, he needs that blood. Turns out, Merck's and Maynard share a blood type. Dun-dun-dun. So goodbye, Dr. Maynard. Then, Merck's brother comes in. He's been the one stealing the blood, and he said that he would help Ormond as long as there was no killing. So... You just killed a doctor. I'm not helping anymore. So goodbye, brother. <laughs> we cut to Merck's, Ormond that is, trying to bury Maynard's body in a cemetery. But police come before he finishes. Turns out Maynard has also been embalmed. Police head to Maynard's office and they find Nurse Susan and Dr. Terry definitely not having sex. <laughs> they also find an embalmed Fred. In the fridge. In the fridge, the icebox, mm-hmm. technically. Um, so, Susan and Terry are taken in for questioning. However, after a taxi driver turns up dead and embalmed at the same time that Susan and Terry were being interrogated, the cops let them go. They head back to Maynard's office, and they resolve to solve the crime themselves to clear any and all suspicions of themselves. They find clues that lead them to suspect Merck's, except he's listed as deceased. So they go to check out his old mansion anyway, since the graveyard where Maynard's body was found is nearby this mansion. We interrupt this broadcast with news that a Dr. Garland, head of the sanatorium where Merck's was held, has gone missing. Back to your regular scheduled programming. (laughs) Susan and Terry get to the old abandoned mansion and they find the mausoleum on the estate where Merck's spot is empty. In the house, they find embalming fluid because Merck's used to be in the undertaker business. And more, they find Dr. Garland's embalmed body. Dun dun dun. (laughs) The police catch up with Susan and Terry and while they try to explain to the police why they're there clear their names, say that it's Merck's. Merck's kidnaps Susan, and we get a car chase. Yeah, he he grabs, like, the lead detective's car and takes Susan in it, and everybody else piles into, 
like the backup cop car and goes after them. And it's actually kind of clever the way they're able to like track them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so because the police car that Merck stole has its radio button stuck on, the good guys can hear basically an ongoing transmission of where Merck's is. And they use that to track them down. So they hear, you know, some train tracks. They hear um, the booming clock tower where Maynard's office is. So they figure out, ah, they're heading to Maynard's office again. Because we only have so many sets. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, precisely. When Terry and the police get there, Susan has just finished giving a blood transfusion to Merck's. Turns out, she's been hypnotized to help the fiend. Merck's and Susan make an escape to the roof, and it looks like Susan's gonna shoot Terry on Merck's orders. But instead, Merck's is shot by the police instead. Susan comes to and says, Oh boy, I need a drink. Which Terry then suggests, How about a zombie? (laughs) The end. Yep. That's the movie. (laughs) That's the movie. Merck's, it's funny, like, he doesn't, he's not technically a zombie. He's, he doesn't really follow the rules, but that's where he got his uh, undead, like, skills from. And then he's not, like, he's kind of a vampire because he needs, like, blood to live, but he's not really a vampire either. doesn't check all the boxes there. He's not biting people. He gets a regular blood transfusion, and he has to follow his own blood type. Right. The reason why I say he's a Dracula is because he definitely checks all of those boxes. He's like an older, menacing man in, like, Victorian evening clothes who, like, goes after the young woman and has, like, hypnosis powers and shit, like, and hangs out in his creepy old manor with his empty grave. Yeah. Like, or empty coffin. Yeah. Like, he's a Dracula. For sure. It is a lot of fun. It keeps you engaged with pretty good performances from all of the actors and surprisingly good camera work and lighting. Yeah, yeah. Like, like very um, original and, um, dare I say, boundary pushing during some parts. The interrogation scene is what I'm thinking of in particular, where you just have, like, the whole screen is black except for a spotlight on Susan's face. And she's, like, saying no to the questions which we mm-hmm. have not heard um and we're like zooming in on her face and moving back out and then the lights come on i don't know if i would necessarily consider that innovative or boundary pushing um i think one of the issues sometimes with doing this show is that we're just seeing the horror movies right True. this shot might have been in a film noir yeah or a crime film or whatever i think that's a very good point to bring up though which is that you can really feel the popularity of film noir at the time this movie came out with how the movie is styled. There's a lot of Venetian blinds. There's a lot of sort of fast-talking, like, witty banter. There's, like, a a cop who's getting too old for this shit. You know, even though they do go to the creepy old mansion in the country, which is a very, like, traditional horror setting, like, the beginning and end of the movie are set in the city, and, like, you know, the ending of the movie involves, like, a rooftop gunfight, And, like, the sets and the model they use for the clock tower and everything. Like, this movie's, I think, set in Gotham City. Yes. Um, I would agree. So, like... Especially with the manor so close. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. out of the country, but yet within driving distance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's very, like, 
you can see the influence of these other genres coming in, for and sure. And of cereals, which yes. wasn't so surprising, but I did appreciate that, like, the tropes that I saw in this that came from cereals weren't the boring tropes. It wasn't the constant repetition of exposition. Yeah. It was more of the, like, the story needs to be constantly moving. The um, exposition by way of news broadcasting. Right. Um, even, like, when we cut to them... Susan and Terry driving to the manor, Susan again saying, like, no, I really think we should get the police involved Mm -hmm. because we're in over our heads for these reasons. Yeah. And we just had a scene where she lays out those reasons. Yeah. The thing about this movie is it might not, like, be truly a great film, Mm -hmm. but it's just way more alive feeling than so many of the horror bees have been in the back half of the 1940s. This feels like they're actually putting some effort in you know you mentioned the the camera work and the cinematography also like the editing and the performances and the music like it feels like they're trying to make a good movie or at least an entertaining movie with what they have when a lot of these programmers um from the poverty row or even like universal or columbia or whatever just feel like you know they showed up to set on monday they put the camera on a tripod They told the actors to walk in front of it and say their lines. Once that was done, they wrapped up for the day and went home. Mm -hmm. Even in the case of the flashback when Merckx first approaches Maynard, we don't get Merckx's exposition. Mm -hmm. We get an actual flashback on a dark and stormy Stormy. night with lightning flashes and everything. And it kind of draws you in because Maynard is like, I don't know where you're from. Like, who are you? Yeah. Yeah, it, it allows us to be in suspense without immediately thinking that they have to answer our question. I think if you were to sit someone down who hasn't seen a ton of 1940s B-horror movies and asked them to kind of imagine what a 1940s B-horror movie is like, I think this is what they would imagine. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of tropey, cliche kind of stuff going on here with, you know, the lightning and the dark and stormy night and, like, characters saying stuff and then moving out of frame to reveal that the villain's like been behind them watching the whole time and the villain being this like guy with a cape who jumps around (laughs) like you know the the scared girl and her kind of headstrong clueless boyfriend but the thing is if you're us and you've been watching all of these yes this is what you would like this is what you want these movies to be and they so often aren't yeah. Because nobody's actually putting in the effort for it. So, like, this is just so much more fun. And I think the identification that, like, I don't think the people making this movie care in the sense of, like, oh, this is, like, going to be a true classic. Yeah. But they're clearly having fun. They're clearly, like, enjoying what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think you do see the effort coming from the director. Like, you said that this is Ford's third feature film, mm-hmm. I think if this had been his 30th, maybe it would have been a little tired, but because he's still new to it, he's like, oh, let's just going to be fun, let's just, let's, sure. I have this idea, let's do this cool idea. He's not burnt out, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. I mean... Or trapped in his own tropes that he's so established in, like we saw with Catman of Paris. Right. I mean, another way to describe this movie is that it's like if Ed Wood had talent and competency. Ooh. Like, it's the kind of movie that Ed Wood was trying to make. Sure, right? I would, yes. 
down to the Dracula type right. person. But like, like the his weird marks could have just been Bella Lugosi. Right, like the but the weird mix between like gothic horror tropes and like some sci fi ish tropes, and then like the young couple who kind of like are a bit like spunky but also kind of funny, and then like there's the the sort of competent police who are after them. You know, like it feels like what Edwards movies were trying to be. Speaking of the main characters, I think, like, someone watching this movie without a lot of context, like a modern viewer, might find um, Adrian Booth's performance as Susan Drake, which is kind of like, her whole shtick is she's very cowardly. You might find it, like, annoying, or maybe even, like, sexist, because she's just, like, always screaming and terrified of everything. But let me tell you that in the context of the rest of these movies it made her actually feel like a character. Yeah, she somehow manages to give variety to Susan and her screams or her scared antics. Well, it's because, like, the, what they've done here is instead of kind of the scared stock heroine character of a horror movie, um, that's not really what she's doing here because she's following Terry around on the investigation and he's like let's go into the crypt and she's like oh gosh do we have to so what they've actually done is they've taken the cowardly darky sidekick archetype and mapped it onto the girlfriend that's kind of what's happened here um what what do you mean well, like, so if you imagine, like, the movies we've seen with, like, Manton Moreland or something in them, or even going back to something like King of the Zombies, which is horror comedy, not true horror, um, you know, the hero would be like, ah, the graves are right over here, let's examine them. And then, you know, someone like Manton Moreland or Stephen Eats or whatever would be like, gosh, gee, boss, like, I don't think we should be going in there. And that's kind of what the role they've given Susan is. And because it's just, like, it's still an archetype, but it's not usually the girlfriend's archetype, it just gives her more to do and makes her feel more vibrant than if she was the character who does nothing until the bad guy shows up, then she screams and faints, and mm -hmm. he carries her around the moors until she can be rescued. Sure. I, I don't know if I fully agree, but I would agree that whenever the film is trying to do a comedic beat, it's coming from Susan. Mm -hmm. Whether that's someone creeping up behind her, or um, her one-liners about, like, we really shouldn't be in here, or whatever. It helps that her one-liners are also actually funny. Yes. Like, my favorite... Some of, some of the lines in here are really good. My favorite one that I can remember is, like, they're going through the scary parts, and she's like, just right up on Terry, right behind him, you know, shaking in her boots, basically. And Terry's like, you know, stay close. And she says something like, if we were any closer, we'd be wearing the same shoes. Yeah. The other line I really like is from the police. I think it's Detective Blair. Um, they're, it's not really important that they're named. That's why I just called them police. Yeah, yeah. Blatsomer. But there's like a lead dude, and that's Blair. And he... <laughs> Because all, all of the victims are embalmed, he's like, let's go get whoever's pickling these these people. Oh, yeah, it's, like it's way more complicated. He, he gives off like a, a <laughs> three or four P word, like alliterative sentence that's like, let's go find this like pernicious pickler of people or something along something those like lines. Something like that. It's so fun. That's also like something from serials that mm -hmm. I, I like. But maybe it's just because we watch Batman 66. And, and, you know, bringing it back to... Terry and Susan, 
you know, what I felt anyways is they gave off, like, big, like, Fred and Daphne energy. Absolutely. If Daphne was a little bit more with Shaggy. Right, yeah, exactly. And the the thing about that is, so they have one personality trait each, like, Susan's scared and Terry is kind of, like, headstrong. Like, to the point where, like, the, when the cops arrest him, he's, like, making jokes. Oh, maybe I am the murderer. And you're like, dude. And then, like, when it comes to, like, solve the mystery themselves, he's just like, yeah, let's just go and do it. But even though they have only really one personality trait each, that's still one more personality trait than most of their contemporaries yes. in these movies have, which makes them infinitely more entertaining to watch. Mm-hmm. Speaking of um, archetypes, Ian Keith as Mercs is so great. He's hamming it up. It's kind of a comic book villain type of thing. Like, no real motive besides, like, give me your blood. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have any kind of uh, monster makeup on. He's just drenched in shadow. There might be some makeup to emphasize creases in his face. Make him look more gaunt. Yeah. Um... If, if you can remember way, way, way back when, uh, I think it was Roland West's The Monster, mm. and it had Lon Chaney Sr. as like a mad scientist in the basement. Yes. The makeup seemed very similar for that. It's so not like monstrous, but like, oh, you're a creepy guy. <laughs> Speaking of Roland West, uh, this movie also had like a good old-fashioned like girl is back up against the wall and bad guy like from her POV, like, marches straight into the camera menacingly shot, which, like, I don't remember the last time we had one of those. Yeah. The last one that is, like, significant in my mind is from The Bat. Yeah, that's, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so this this was so fun, I think, because they were using these old tropes from horror, or these old, uh, trope I feel like isn't the right word, but these old, like, camera tricks or moves mm-hmm. or, or things that were, like, it was more of an homage, I guess, and rather the, than a ripoff. And the thing is, is like, you say that um, Merckx is a like comic booky villain, and that's totally true. And it makes sense that you know, again, these are serial writers, and like most serials were kind of like adaptations of either like pulp magazine stories or comic book stories, right? Well, yeah, didn't they write Captain America? Or something? Yeah, these guys wrote Captain America. Uh, one of them also wrote Superman, the first Superman serial, and then Batman and Robin, which is the second Batman serial. The thing about Mercs that's that really struck me is that despite like, yeah, not really having much in the way of character, he came off actually menacing. Yes. Which also has been kind of rare in these movies. Absolutely. Like he... I mean, it helps when, like, the first thing you do in a movie is you kill a guy, and then the second thing you do in a movie is kill another guy. Your own brother. And then, like, you know, when the shootout between Mercs and the cops happens at the end of the movie, like, first thing, his first shot, he kills a cop. Yes. Right? Like, so, you know, these kind of things help raise tension and make the villain actually scary, and it just feels like, I don't know, it feels like George Zuko and that sort of ilk have just not actually felt threatening for a while. And I don't know if that's just the kind of languid pace and, oh, we're sick of this quality that we've identified in those movies, or if it's just that, like, some of these horror stars we're so familiar with at this point that it's like, yeah, we like George Zuko. We don't find him menacing. No, I think there's um, definitely something to the pace of the films. Mm -hmm. Because if you sit down and think about it, Merck's... In this movie, 
isn't really a threat unless you happen to have his blood type. Right. Or were involved in his past. Right. Like, he's a serial killer in the sense that he kills serially. Right. But he's not a danger to the general population in the same way that, like, Jack the Ripper was. Uh, it's the same thing that we saw with a lot of George Zuko mm-hmm. characters, where, you know, you're not actually threatened by him unless you happen to be in this movie. Yeah. So they... <laughs> you kind of just laugh at it. Um, but the pace of Valley of the Zombies keeps you going and keeps you very entertained and along for the ride. Well, it's just, you know, yeah, you're only threatened if you're the characters in the movie, but this movie made the characters feel threatened. Yes. You know, and even though it shares a lot in common with a lot of other Poverty Row horror movies, you know, the the revenge plot, the young couple who get involved, the fact that we kind of move between, like, a maximum of four locations that we just kind of keep traveling between. Oh, yeah, we don't even see the second floor of the mansion. We see, like, the entry hall, and that's it. Like, yeah. the foyer and sort of where the, the embalming area was. Yeah, there's there's shots where they're, like, looking up the stairs to the second floor where <laughs> Merck's is, but we never see Merck's on the second floor. It's just a camera shot at people's faces as they're like, oh, look, the second floor. Yeah, because um, that, that second floor is not built. Right. <laughs> so it has all these things in common, but it just manages by keeping up the pace and having stuff happening all the time. Like, yes. And in a logical way. Like, yes. It's not like random shit happening. Yeah, like even the thing with the, the radio, with the car, right? Like there's a scene where they send uh, one of the cops, his name is Tiny because he's a big guy, they send him back to, like, radio for the backup. And he's like, ah, you know, the darn button on this is broken. And I was like, so? <laughs> and then, like, yeah, that turned out to be a plot point. Like, the plot holds together for the most part. And there's no feeling of, like, oh, we have to fill time. Right, yeah. Because they used the scenes that were needed to fill time to actually, like, add something. And it changes the tone so much that, like, Merckx is immediately active and doing things from the jump, rather than something where it's like, well, if we don't do this by this time, he'll be dangerous, and then, like, he's threatening in the last five minutes, and then the movie's over. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it just, it tells its story well for what it is, and it's, you know, what it is is, like, a fun, cheesy, cheap horror movie. Short, sweet, and fun. Yes. Yeah. Under an hour. Watch it. I would recommend this movie. Yeah. But where would you rank it? Well, Sarah, as I said earlier, like, I don't think this is as much fun as we had with it. I don't think this is a truly great movie. No. But it's just pure level of competency. And the fact that it feels like the movie is actually trying to scare me. It's really giving its all to actually scare the audience. Really puts it above... So many of the Poverty Row B movies, even the ones that are like the Devil Bat, where it's so bad it's good. This isn't so bad it's good. It's just straight good. Yeah. So I was making my way up the list, you know? Yeah, for sure. And the bottom of my range is number 60. I thought this was definitely better than Murders in the Rue Morgue. Now, it doesn't get as dark as Murders in the Rue Morgue does, and it doesn't, like, push societal taboos the way that movie does. But it is 100% more consistent than that movie is. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, this movie is what it is, and you know what it is going in, and that's what it stays the whole time. The problem with Murders in the Morgue is that it's an early era, so it gets to be more transgressive, because the rules weren't set out yet. 
but the structure and the tone is all over the place because the rules aren't set up yet. They're still figuring out what a horror movie is, right? Looking what's above there, um, there's a lot of stuff where I was like, okay, you know, this is kind of comparable. I don't know. The Ghoul was a movie that this movie made me think of for some reason. And then right above The Ghoul, there's Strangler of the Swamp. Eh, this is better than Strangler of the Swamp, I think. And then above that, we have like Invisible Ghost, White Zombie. Okay, these are a bit closer to the neighborhood. But I kept looking up just to kind of see what was in this area. At 47, there's Captive Wild Woman, which is really good at being menacing and scary when John Carradine's on the screen, and really good at being boring or potentially repulsive in any other scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately above Captain Wild Woman, however, is Phantom of the Convent, which is a downright disturbing movie. This is not better than that. This movie scares you in the way that, like, a cheap haunted house at a carnival scares you, where it's like, ooh, <laughs> it's all so spooky, and then something jumps out! And you're just having fun. You're, you're sort of laughing when you scream. Whereas, like, Phantom of the Convent, if you're in the wrong mood and it's late at night, like, that could give you nightmares. Okay. So I, I kind of topped out there. So my range is 47 to 60. Okay. So, um, full transparency, I was looking below where you are. I think you've convinced me to go higher. So originally I was looking between 61 and 67. Dracula's Daughter down to The Ghost of Frankenstein. Oh, okay, so our ranges were sort of adjacent. Yeah, so part of the reason why I was looking at Dracula's Daughter is because the transgressive things in Murders in the Rue Morgue are pretty, like, they weight that movie higher than what it normally would be at. But I was also thinking of Dr. X, Mm -hmm. where, like, I know that we get kind of tired of the bumbling reporter character, Mm But I was comparing the way that the baddie and that is putting, like, synthetic flesh on his face mm-hmm. and how menacing that is compared to Merck's in this movie. What I think about with Dr. X versus this movie is that they are both movies that don't feel ashamed of their genre or yeah. bored of their genre. Yeah. They're movies that feel like they're kind of reveling in how fun that kind of genre can be. Absolutely. Um... But um, I think you've talked me into considering it higher, especially when comparing it to things like The Ghoul and Strangler of the Swamp. Mm -hmm. The Strangler of the Swamp, for example, has a lot of filler of just people walking around in foggy swamps with the camera stationary. Strangler of the Swamp also does suffer a lot from being a remake of a far superior movie. It suffers from comparison. And I would agree of comparing it to Captive Wild Woman, that Valley of the Zombies is more cohesive because they actually filmed a whole movie and not just half of a movie. Right. Um, And it's really trying to do something. It's having a lot of fun in what it's doing, whereas, you know, Captive Wild Woman was like, well, we got this footage lying around. Let's make a horror movie around it. Yeah. So I would actually agree with you about putting this below El Fantasma del Convento at 46 but above Captive Wild Woman, so this would be slotted in at the new 47. All right, let's do that. Cool. I do think it's funny that in terms of where we started for ranking, both of us basically immediately thought, well, this is better than Ghost of Frankenstein. Yes. Like, you know, we kept saying through the the right of, or the, the second half, like, oh, it's better than all of these, like, really tired, mediocre, they didn't care horror movies, and it's like Ghost of Frankenstein is like the epitome of that. I would love to see a double feature, though, of Dr. X and Valley of the Zombies. I feel like you identified that they're fun 
yeah. <laughs> the, the, the fun that you get from watching them really comes through. The, the thing about Valley of the Zombies is now I want it to have a real DVD release so more people can see it. But I think, like, the thing holding it back is that title. Yeah. If it had a title that was more indicative of what the movie is... Anyways. Listen, Luton got through it. Mm. So coming in at the new number 47 is Valley of the Zombies from 1946, directed by Philip Ford. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today. You can re-listen to the Dr. X episode. You can also find a link to our YouTube playlist, so you can now go watch the movie after hearing that it's actually worth watching. And you'll also find our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, drop us a line on our ask box on Tumblr, reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or chat with us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. You can subscribe to the show through any podcasting app by using our RSS feed. And if the service that you use to listen to the show lets you leave a rating or a review, we would really appreciate it if you did that. Those kind of things help the show show up more in algorithms and therefore lets more people become aware of the show and listen to it. And more people will learn about how good Valley of the Zombies is. Right. Also to that effect, uh, just telling someone you know about the show in person or on social media is a big help because word of mouth is really the most effective way for podcasts to grow its audience. And if you really feel like you want to keep supporting what we're doing here and, you know, make sure that we can keep doing episodes where we dig up movies that don't have home video releases and then tell you about how great they are, you can support us by going to our Patreon at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. At the $5 and $10 levels, you get access to bonus material. Uh, our 100th week of Patreon bonus material is coming up, and we are looking for you guys to submit us questions that we can answer in a special Q&A episode. So you can do that through our Patreon, through Twitter, through Tumblr, at the email. Uh, Sarah just gave you all of those links. So yeah, any question on any topic, basically. Uh, it's our Scream Scene AMA. So once again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are watching The Brute Man. Oh, is this the last Rondo Hatton movie? This is the final Rondo Hatton movie, and the final movie featuring his character, The Creeper. And it has a very interesting production history. It's directed by Gene Yarbrough. It was made by Universal Pictures, and it was released by PRC. Oh, so Universal really just, like, put up their hands and backed away. We will discuss it and the uh, sort of tragic aftermath of the life of Rondo Hatton more on next week's program. Tune in next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye!